This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, November 17th, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. We control far less about our world than we might like to believe. To Matt Ridley, that's often a very good thing. In his new book, The Evolution of Everything, he discusses how ideas emerge in religion, technology, government, leadership, money, even our own minds. We spoke last week. You mentioned that uh, some of your friends, ideologically minded, would might take offense or uh, be bothered by certain things you say about religion, and certain other of your friends would be bothered by what they what you say about government. So uh, drill down just a little bit. What are the things that uh, that you say that you think will cause some of your friends trouble? Well, I'm arguing that the world is a much more bottom-up place, much less top-down place, and that we make the mistake of, of, of thinking that uh, somebody's in charge, uh, and that's God in some cases, and it's government in other cases. We, we tend to think the government runs the economy. Well, that's nonsense. It doesn't. Ordinary people run the economy. We tend to think God uh, tells us how to behave well. I think that's nonsense too. I think we tell each other how to behave well. So. Uh, um, people who are wedded to a particular view of the world, what I would call a slightly creationist view of the world, um, believing in too much top-down planning, uh, may not like some of my chapters. But the interesting thing is, of course, that people on the left will dislike some chapters and people on the right will dislike other chapters. Now, we can see technologically, at least in the 20th century and 21st century, we can watch technology evolve. That's uh, That's been something that from year to year, recently at least, we've been able to observe directly with uh, religion and tenets of religion. We have to go back thousands of years to find out why uh, certain groups don't eat pork, don't eat shellfish, uh, treat their bodies in specific ways. Uh, So the fact that it is distant maybe makes that uh, evolution uh, I, I don't know, less uh, less accessible. Yes, and and slower as well. I mean, what we've seen in our lifetime, we've seen the uh, the eruption of the cellular phone, and we've seen it shrink in size, and we've seen it gain in capabilities, and we've seen, you know, the way that is pretty incremental. Of course, there's revolutionary products come along, but actually, when you go back and look at them, they're just as an improvement on the previous one. Uh, and I would say that if you go back 2,000 years, you can see in the historical record the same thing happening with, for example, religions. So in around uh, 0 AD, I mean, around the turn of the uh, first millennium, well, the, before the first millennium, um, the Roman Empire has created a gigantic uh, open market, as it were. And if you go into any city in the Roman Empire, you will find lots of competing gods, uh, little local gods uh, and little local temples and things. And it's kind of ripe to be taken over. And I use the analogy of Starbucks. You know, it, it was it was waiting for its religious version of Starbucks. And it turned out that, I mean, I, if you look look at it at the time, it looks like the cult of Apollonius of, of Tayana is, is the most promising uh, of these universalist religions that's going to take over the world. It's very persuasive. It has, it's very spectacular. It's very philosophical. It's very elite. Uh, but in fact, it's the cult of a uh, rather obscure Palestinian carpenter that wins the jackpot. So in, in, in the realm of technology, uh, you know, there's this argument that a piece of technology widely adopted then sets the stage for its own destruction. That's certainly true uh, today that that each technology, uh, as it were, brings the possibility that it will 
lead to something that will make it obsolete. Uh, of course, in most of history, we could live our whole lives without seeing technologies become obsolete. You know, so in the Middle Ages, you, you wouldn't necessarily see a change in the design of plows or horse harnesses or something. Um, it's quite new to find technology changing so fast that we can see obsolescence coming. Uh, and it's it's almost difficult for us now. I mean, I find it irritating when you when you go back to get another, uh, you know, uh, if something wears out and you want another one, you find, nope, they've discontinued it. There's a new version of something. But, uh, you know, that enables us to see how things are evolving in a way. So it might have been hard to write this book 100 years ago because things were changing much too slowly to, to, to be noticeable. I never understood until very recently the value of advice columnists, people who help you negotiate with uh, your friends, with your employer and that sort of thing because it never made sense to me that people didn't know what the rules were. But as technology has advanced, it seems that uh, knowing the rules, it becomes difficult because in many cases there aren't any rules for how we deal with one another and, and how those uh, expectations, broad expectations society-wide actually get meted out. And, uh, you know, dealing with technology in that way um, seems to be something that only a diverse group of people can handle, that there, there, is, there is almost no opportunity, uh, legitimate opportunity to have a top-down structure for that. Uh, yes, I think that that, that as people um, come to grapple with uh, new technologies, there's no point in looking for expertise um, because we're all just as expert as each other. Um, uh, and and uh, you know the idea that uh, you would you would sort of teach a course on on how to use a um, a mobile phone seems ridiculous, you know, because we're all learning to do it at the same time sort of thing. So I think in that sense, yes, we, we, we learn how to deal with new technologies um, uh, among ourselves, yes. I wonder, though, if there is in the rapid evolution of technology whether or not we're actually uh, losing something or leaving people behind uh, who are not as adaptable as we might hope and being able to keep up and take advantage of opportunities that rapid technological advancement affords us. Well, one of the curious things about new technology that we're all aware of is that young people are better at adapting to changes in technology than old people. And I'm you know, reaching the age where there are things that are clearly passing me by, um, versions of social media that I won't bother with. Uh, you know, I'll stick to my old ways of doing things just as my parents didn't get on computers at all sort of thing. And uh, that's um, uh, and it's certainly true that, that it's possible to get left behind in that sense by technology. Uh, but I, I think we overestimate the degree to which that's a problem. Uh, you know, some of the technologies we're bringing in are even more valuable for old people than they are for young people. Uh, and I know a lot of elderly people who take to new technologies like ducks to water. How has uh, technology altered leadership? And I'm thinking specifically of people who are very popular on television who are now running for president. I <laughs> um, can't think who you're referring to. Fair enough. Um, but clearly, technology allows different ways to become a leader and different ways to behave as a leader. 
I've always been intrigued by the fact that the early 20th century saw the rise of dictatorships all over Europe, and it also saw the rise of uh, radio. Uh, and if you look closely at what a lot of those dictators did, it was they used radio very heavily. And there were people in America, like Father Coughlin, who, you know, as it were, were heading in the same direction. And again, radio was a big part of it because it's a one-to-many technology, radio, because you can use it as a demagogic tool, as it were. It, it was used in those early days very much as a sort of megaphone, uh, as if you were at a big rally. Uh, and that so, you know, technology helped create a slightly dangerous tendency in human leadership, I would argue, in, in the early 20th century. Um, uh, clearly, technology leads to the cult of celebrity today. Um, uh, and it, but, it, but it is, on the whole, also uh, somewhat leveling. Uh, you know, I think today you can be a very influential person if you're just an ordinary person who happens to send out a very interesting message on social media. That wasn't possible for ordinary people 50 years ago. And I think we should celebrate that. You know, we really are hearing from ordinary people much more than we used to. Uh, and of course, some of our politicians are reflecting back to us what ordinary people really think slightly more than, than the elites are comfortable with. Years ago, Virginia Postrel made this argument in the, the pages of Reason magazine that I thought was it was so compelling that we had reached a point, and this was in the late 1980s, where technology was uh, proceeding so rapidly that regulators were having a hard time keeping up. And by the time a technology could be deployed and widely popular and have a constituency of millions of people, that was about the time regulators were ramping up to regulate it. And her argument was maybe that's a good thing because it might prevent a lot of regulation. If uh, new technology can build a huge constituency in a relatively short period of time. I think that's definitely true. And, and the rise of the internet is the best example of that, that uh, you know, the internet got going in a pretty unregulated way. You know, and you can imagine that if, if, if politicians and regulators had known just how big and important the internet was going to become, they'd have had a conference and they'd have sat down and they'd have written rules um, about what you can and can't say on social media uh, well in advance of us inventing social media. Instead of which we had to discover in an evolutionary sort of way um, what was possible and what wasn't possible and we had to, dis we had to you know, stumble upon things that problems that needed solving through regulation and problems that would solve themselves without regulation. And I think uh, the story of the internet is staying one step ahead of regulation and uh, governments and international bodies are desperately trying to catch up. And, and you know, there's a lot of talk about regulating the internet. Um, the International Telecommunications Union and things like that uh, go on about this all the time. Long may they fail is all I can say. After having watched what has uh, unfolded at Yale and uh, the University of Missouri uh, in Columbia, I feel like maybe there's a room for one more chapter in another version of this called maybe the evolution of the youthful indiscretion which is something you do as a college student, a stupid college student, is now uh, maybe crystallized permanently uh, for all to see. And certainly some new rules need to be meted out uh, by all of us uh, at some point about how that works. Well, even those of us who went to college in the 1970s are aware that there are old black and white photographs of us doing embarrassing things in some people's 
Um, uh, I mean, I don't know for sure that there is one of me. I'm not <laughs> implying that there is, but, you know, there could well be. But that is a huge problem today, obviously, is that people have said things and done things on social media uh, as, as kids that, that, that may come back to haunt them in, in later life. Um, I think we will evolve ways of, of, of coping with that, of dealing with that. Uh, I'm very intrigued by how young people today are not as bothered about their privacy as we would expect them to be, uh, nor are they as bothered about free speech as we would expect them to be. And a lot of what we're seeing at Yale and University of Missouri is, is are examples of this extraordinary phenomenon whereby there's much more interest in shutting down inappropriate speech than in challenging inappropriate, I'm not inappropriate, but speech that you think is inappropriate, but than in, than in challenging it. And, and that, for, for me, someone brought up on the values of the Enlightenment and the uh, importance of, uh, you know, the absolute crucial importance to our civilization of being able to say anything you want within certain limits um, is surprising. Uh, you know, I, I, I fear we are losing something precious, but I might be wrong. With any luck, it'll, it'll sort itself. In, in your talk, you spoke of the light bulb and the uh, arguments that uh, have occurred over its, its origins, but you said that it was a technology that was ripe, that it was, uh, it, it seems now at least, this was the logical uh, step to take. Um, how, is there any, there's no way to see that in, except in retrospect. Correct. I think this is a, a crucial point. Just because something turns out in retrospect to have been ripe and ready to be discovered or invented uh, doesn't mean we can say, you know, in the year 2025, we will inevitably discover X. We can make guesses in the future, but it's, it's, it's very asymmetric. You can see in advance how predictable things were in, 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 uh, in I mean, so you can see in retrospect how, how predictable things were. You can't see in advance how, how predictable they are. Uh, and, uh, the, you know, there's a sort of inevitability about discovering the structure of DNA when we did or discovering um, uh, inventing mobile phones when we did. But, but it, it, you go back a few years before that and I mean, you, you go back and read what, pe what people are saying about telecommunication in the late 1980s. Many of them hardly mention the possibilities of mobile telephony. They think it will remain a niche product. They think it will remain an expensive product, etc. The, the concept of it becoming universal is, is just not there. And yet you look back and you think, well, why couldn't they have predicted it? It's very interesting that. The through line that I see in a lot of your uh, work is uh, that there is a robustness that is not fully appreciated about individual decision-making and uh, individual discovery and the ability of individuals and groups to grab on to the good and let the bad sort of fade away. The, the key ingredient of natural of, of evolution uh, uh, is the two key ingredients are mutation and selection. And people forget that. People think of it as a theory of mutation, but it's not. It's a theory of selection. And in the case of natural selection, that is natural selection. But in the case of cultural evolution, of course, the selection is conscious and is, is us saying, ooh, that's a nice technology. Let's have that. And saying, I don't like that technology. Let's not bother with that. So there are technologies that have fallen by the wayside um, because we didn't like them. And that means that it has an inherent bias towards good outcomes. Now, sure, bad guys can select bad things, but there are fewer of them and they're doing it in secret. Uh, and so that means that on the whole, the good stuff is going to out of the way of the bad. 
Matt Ridley is author of The Evolution of Everything. You can watch a forum for the book held last week at Cato.org. 